Well, hello, Grace family. I'm glad to be back from my ministry trip to Madagascar. It just went really great. Right now, I'm in self-quarantine just for, for safety. I've traveled for four, in four countries and been in close proximity to hundreds of people. But I feel great, and I'm eager to share a lot with you uh, this morning. I do want to say our, the trip to Madagascar was really awesome. And I thank God for your prayers and support. I mean, when I go, it's like we go as a team. We had 550 pastors at the pastor's conference right there in the capital city of Madagascar. And many of them told me that they really felt like they were revived and ready to get back into battle. We also did a youth conference there. We had 115 to 30-year-olds give their life to Christ as the Lord, Lord of their life. Uh, we, I spoke in several churches. It was just a really a, a packed time of a lot of fruitful ministry. And I thank God for uh, really being able to uh, be able to do that. It was an awesome time. Now, I do want to share with you a little visual here. So I do have a video of some of the things just to give you a taste of what happened in Madagascar. So let's go ahead and watch that now. Well, I'm, I'm really excited with uh, Pastor Gary Bean here in Madagascar. And I just want to thank you, you people from the Grace Community Church. This is a really blessing for us here in Madagascar. I have seen a real revival that is going to happen after this. I am going to take whatever I learned from here. I learned a lot and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for sending him to Madagascar. Yes, from the church in America. Greetings from uh, Nehemiah, I'm the pastor in Atanavali, Madagascar. Yeah, first of all, I really want to thank you guys. I appreciate you for uh, letting Gary, uh, letting him go to this uh, uh, big island. We as well, we need those, uh, those teachings. Well, the teaching was really rich deep and uh, empowering, encouraging, and the revelation was so, so clear to us, and uh, yeah, we really, uh, we, we, we realized that is what we want, and um, we thank God for this uh, appointed time, we really believe it's not by mistake, but it was an appointed time for God, so we really enjoy the teachings, thank you guys, guys, for, for letting him go. I give big thanks to God to give uh, Gary from uh, Grace Church in uh, Texas because we are, we, we are very blessed to encourage God uh, use him to raise up God's church in Madagascar. No. Uh, we, I, I hope God has uh, uh, works mightily through God's church in Madagascar uh, through Kairi's uh, 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 ministries. Thank you very much for sending him. Pastor 
Thank you very much. Those are powerful ministry times, and really all the glory goes to God and all that he's done. And uh, is, okay, is this okay? Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> these, are, these really are powerful ministry times, and all the glory goes to God, but also to really being part of a team like Grace Community Church who has the vision and the heart for this sort of thing. Now, when I was gone for less than two weeks, I've never seen the world change as dramatically and as really rapidly as I saw it change during those two weeks. In fact, it reminded me of a little bit of a story I want to tell you. When I was just a little boy, my brother and I and a couple of friends from the neighborhood would go down and play in this abandoned house. The house had broken windows and, and the doors were hanging off the hinges and the whole place was unkept and in shambles. It was just abandoned, but in our minds as little boys, it was a haunted house. And so we would go down there and we would play this little game of scaring each other. The four of us would be in the house and we'd hide and then we'd just pop out after each other and boo, and we'd be scared and we'd laugh. Then after we finished playing the game, we all went upstairs in this abandoned house and we're sitting there and all of a sudden we heard these heavy footsteps coming up the stairway and we realized it wasn't one of us. It wasn't a game. It was real, and we were scared to death. We ran as fast as we could out the back side of that building. Now, what's my point here? My point is that when we were playing our game, it was all pretend. But then when that other loud steps came up the stairs, there was somebody else there, and this was real. We were really scared, and we really ran out of there, totally afraid. Now, what's my point? My point is I think a lot of Christians live like that. It's like uh, the Christian life is like mostly pretend until something happens that makes us realize this is real. This is real. See, the truth is everything that the Bible says is going to happen in the last days is really going to happen. It's going to be for real. And many people have been saying to me since I've gotten back that this all seems so surreal. It seems so dreamlike what's happening. Well, the reason why it seems so surreal is because so many of us weren't really expecting it to really happen. Even though Jesus says this sort of thing will happen in the last days. So this is real. This is not surreal. This virus that has changed the world and continues to do so more dramatically and rapidly than anything we've seen in our lifetime is real. So what do we do now? Now, obviously, we're called to be wise and responsible. We should carefully consider all of the recommended precautions from the CDC and other officials. And as Christians, we should obey our governing our governing authorities. I want to remind you what it says in Romans 13, verse 1 and 2. It says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except for God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he resists authority. He has opposed the ordinance of God. 
and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So as we hear our president and our governor telling us to do certain things, we should do those things. Also, another thing some people are saying to me about, what about all the promises that we have in the Bible about these sort of plagues will not affect the people of God, they may affect the world, but not us. And I'd say to those promises, amen. But I'd also add this. I'd add what Jesus said when the devil tempted him in the wilderness. Do you remember the story? Let me just remind you. Let's look at it. Luke chapter 4, verse 9 says, And he, referring to the devil, led him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now the devil is going to quote scripture to Jesus. For it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. So let's follow Jesus' example here and not put the Lord God to the test by taking any foolish risk right now. So as Christians, let's not only walk by faith, but let's demonstrate submission to authority, responsibility, sanity, sympathy, and let's all just take one day at a time. And of course, we should pray. We should pray for those that are affected right now by this virus. We should pray for those who are just tirelessly working for all those who are affected. We should pray for all the international authorities who are working really around the clock to prevent, contain, and eradicate this virus. So as Christians, we're called to do all those things. But there's something else that is really important for us at this time. There is a biblical perspective that needs to guide us through these days. See, the reality of our lives is that there is a foreground and there is a background to our lives. Very much like, think about a photograph. There's usually in a photograph, you have, a, you have something that's the focus of the photo. That's the foreground. That's what we're focused on. But also you usually have a background of a photo and that's something that usually is not paid much attention to and sometimes not even noticed. Well, the same is true of our lives. There is a foreground. There's a foreground of what we see. Those are the things that are right before us. Those are the things that seem like they're right on top of us. The things that tend to dominate our thinking, the here and now, that's our foreground. But there's also a background of our lives. This invisible, the invisible unseen realities that are kind of behind the curtain, so to speak, beyond us. There's the physical and there's the spiritual things that really make up the reality of our lives. In our world. In fact, there's a pastor by the name of Jeremy McKean who speaks really well on this subject. And he says this Our trouble too often in life is all we see, all we focus on is the foreground of our immediate problems. And we tend to lose sight of the unseen, divine, eternal background that's meant to put everything into proper perspective and guide us in how we are to be thinking and what we are to be doing. Now, our foreground right now is pretty obvious. 
The World Health Organization has officially declared the coronavirus, COVID-19, to be a pandemic. Our foreground right now is the frightening possibilities coming from the news reports we're constantly being bombarded with every, every day, sometimes several times a day. Our foreground right now is the virus, all the effects it's having on our lives, our society, our economy, our day-to-day -day living. This is our foreground. This is our focus. But there is a background. There's a background that we have to keep in mind. There are certain divine spiritual realities and promises that are meant for us to put everything into its right perspective. And this is what Jesus wants us to understand. This actually is what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34. And I want to read it. And as I read it, I want you to see if you can notice the foreground and the background of what Jesus is talking about. Let's read it, Matthew 6, starting verse 25. Jesus says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you? O men of little faith, do not be anxious then saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, in this passage, Jesus addresses both the foreground and the background of our lives. He doesn't just dismiss the foreground of our immediate cares and needs, but he's wanting us to see that's not the whole picture. He wants us to see, that our, see our needs in light of the background of having God as our Heavenly Father. You see, the way that we see really does determine how we live our lives. So it's important that we see rightly so we can live rightly. So my question is this, do you see a world where God is in control, that God is good, that God is loving, that God will accomplish all of his promises, and keep every one of them? Do you see a world like that or not? See, right before Jesus says what I just read, he says something else. So I want to back up Matthew 6, verse 22 and 23. Here's what he says. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, you're not seeing, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
Now, what this means is simply this. Right now in your room, if your eye works, if it takes in light, then you're going to be able to move <clears throat> through your room without stumbling over objects in your room. But if your eye doesn't work right, if it's bad, as Jesus says, and you can't see, even if your whole body's surrounded by light, your body can't take in light any other way but by your eye. So even if your body's surrounded by light without your eye working, you're going to stumble in the darkness. Now, almost everything our body does depends on our ability to see. We see in order to run, jump, drive, cook, paint, whatever. But Jesus actually is using this whole concept metaphorically. Just as our eyes, as they take in light, affect our body's ability to function properly and navigate our way, the same thing is also true spiritually. If we have spiritual vision, we see the background correctly, then we'll be able to negotiate very difficult times because we're able uh, to see see where we're going spiritually. See, so many people are brought to fear and anxiety and anger and frustration right now because of what's going on, but mainly because they are not seeing rightly what is going on. They're only seeing the foreground. They're not seeing the background as part of what's happening. See, Jesus wants us to realize there is a foreground, but there's also a background of life. And we need to be able to see this background in order to negotiate properly what we're going through right now. Now, again, Jesus doesn't dismiss the foreground. He knows we have immediate needs and he cares about those. He just wants us to see the whole picture right now. He wants us to see our needs in light of the background of this. And here's our background. Our God is our loving heavenly father. That's the light really that's the background that Jesus wants us to see. And now he's going to teach two things in light of that. He's going to tell us two things. One, something to avoid. And then two, something to pursue. The first thing he's going to do is tell us, do not be anxious. In light of our background, don't be anxious. You have a loving Heavenly Father. And then he's going to tell us something else. Seek first the kingdom of God. In light of the background, there's something bigger than the foreground. There's something bigger we should be realizing and living in light of, and that is the kingdom of God. So Jesus really wants to give us both a negative and a positive here and consider both of them. So let me just focus our remaining minutes on these two things. First of all, he says, do not be anxious. Now, apparently, he really wants to get this point across because in this passage I just read, he says it three times. He says in verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. He says in verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. He says in verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious. Now, I want you to see what this means. The fact that he has a therefore before each time he tells us not to be anxious. It means that our Christian peace is always meant to be a rational peace. It means we don't have to somehow just dig up and muster up in ourselves peace. It means that we're meant to know something that logically and spiritually removes our anxiety. What's the reason for our peace in this passage that Jesus just spoke through? It's the truth that in Christ, God is our loving 
heavenly father. In fact, that's what chapter six, Matthew's all about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about God as our father. He starts in the beginning. Jesus says, we have a father who sees. And then he goes and talks about prayer. And we're told we have a father who knows and who hears. And now here we're told God is our father who cares and provides. So what's our therefore? What's the logical background for our peace? The logical background for our peace is this. We have a God who sees. He sees everything happening right now. He hears. He's hearing every prayer. He knows. He cares. And he supplies. Now, what does 1 Peter 5, 7 say? It says, cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. So this is the background of our life. The sovereign, good, loving, wise care of our Heavenly Father. That's our background. But the problem that Jesus points out in verse 25 is too often we're only focused on the foreground. We're focused really, when you think about it, we're focused on the wrong things and we're asking the wrong questions. All we're focused on really is our immediate needs and we're asking the question, what if? What if this happens? What if this happens next? What if this happens? And really we're asking the wrong questions. We need to bring the background into view. And that's what Jesus does in his passage. He brings the background into view. He says this, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Who feeds them? Who dresses them? Of course, the answer is God. God is managing the whole bird economy. In fact, God is in control of the whole lily fashion industry. Think about that. What's Jesus doing here? He's trying to get us to see the background right now. It's almost like he's saying, I want you to imagine a father who has a bunch of birds for pets. And these birds don't work. They don't toil. They're not stressed out. And yet they're fed every day. I want you to think how irrational would be that father to take such good care of those birds and then to go into the house and not care about his own children. Then he goes on to say, I want you to think about a father who has a garden full of flowers. How crazy would it be for that father who cares for all of those flowers so well and doesn't even care about his own children? So that's what Jesus wants us to, to know. That's why he finishes by saying, are you not of much more value than they are? And the answer is, of course we are. God is your father and you are his child. And every father in his right mind knows how to care for his children. So again, what is Jesus doing here? He's getting us to see the background that behind every good thing in creation that we see God doing is our loving heavenly father's character. How much more will that not apply to us as his very own children? So this is the background that Jesus wants us to remember and be reawakened to because if we don't, and if we're not, there's ultimately no long-term solution for our anxiety. In fact, there's an interesting book written by Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, and he points out in his book, he says, there is no escape from anxiety. Now, why would he say that? Well, that's because he's refused to acknowledge the background. 
he's an atheist. And of course, there's no escape for anxiety, truly, if you're an atheist. See, if we cut God out of the picture and we don't have a loving Heavenly Father, if we're not seeing all of our problems really in light of Him, then we'll find ourselves choked and suffocated with this constant churning of anxiety. So anxiety comes from obsessing really over the wrong things. Those are our immediate issues. But also over asking the wrong questions. What if? What if this happens or that happens? See, those are really the kind of questions that breed anxiety and worry and fear. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but our heavenly, our loving Heavenly Father, He does. See, the question that really brings peace is not what if, but the question that brings peace is who is? Who is? Who is my God? Who is your God? Who's our God? What do we profess really as Christians? We say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's it. That's our background. That's our background of our lives. That's the background of our faith. So let me ask you this. What are you focused on right now? What questions are churning in your soul and in your mind? Well, Jesus says, do not be anxious. But then he says something for us to do. He says, don't do that, but do this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? And how do we do that, practically speaking? Well, before we try to answer that, I want you to see this helpful connection that Jesus makes in this passage for us. He says in verse 32, he connects our anxiety with our seeking. He says, the Gentiles, which in short is the unbelievers of the day, he says, they seek after these things, health, wealth, material possessions, the physical things of life. That's all they want. That's all they think about. That's all they talk about. And that's why that's what they're anxious about. So I want you to see this principle. See, our anxieties really do reveal our priorities. We get anxious about the things that we put our hope in. That's why early in the chapter, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you're hoping in, what you're investing in, that's what's going to have like a vice grip on your heart. So what does Jesus do? Again, he calls the background into view. He says, let me give you something else to seek after. It's almost like he's saying, you want to be anxious for something? Let me give you something to be anxious about. Or you want to seek something? Let me give you something to seek after. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he's already told us earlier in verse 20, chapter 6, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, live for eternal things. Don't put your ultimate hope in this life. Put it in the next. So, well, how do we do that? Well, he also tells us in the same sermon, things like love your neighbors as yourself, uh, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, give to, even give to your own hurt. So seeking first the kingdom of God really involves uh, two things. Number one, remember our hope of heaven. And number two, radically demonstrate the love of Christ here and now. 
Now, do you see how this works? The great security of our hope is heaven, and that frees us actually to demonstrate the love of Christ. Those actually go together. See, I want to remind you that the early Christians, they took these words to heart, and they lived them out radically, and they changed the world because they did. I want to just read out of Hebrews what some of these first century Christians did in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 34, says, For remember, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. I want you to see that connection. Because of what they knew, what, what do they knew? They knew the hope of heaven. It resulted in what they did. What do they do? They showed the love of Christ. Rodney Stark was the, is author of a book entitled The Rise of Christianity. And in this book, he, he really kind of tracks the conversion rate throughout the book. But what he argues in the book is really interesting. He argues that the spread of Christianity in the early centuries was largely due to the care and compassion that Christians showed to the poor and the sick during different plagues and epidemics. Isn't that interesting? Also, Eusebius, the early church historian, wrote that because of the church's compassion for those in need during times of crisis, and I quote, he said, the deeds of Christians were on everyone's lips as the Christians are ministering to those in very difficult situations. Uh, Candida Moss, a professor of New Testament in early Christianity in Notre Dame, noted this, and I quote, an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. See, because of their hope of heaven and their love of Christ, showing it to others, Christians really showed that the world, that Christianity, is even worth dying for. All throughout the centuries, their reports were the same in England during the 1800s when many were dying of cholera. Charles Spurgeon and his church visited hundreds of homes to care for people. And even now, some of you probably have seen it. I've seen it on, on TV where they're showing some of the people from the churches in China and Italy on the streets, giving away free masks, sharing food, helping the sick. Now, why do they do this? How do they do this? They do it because they have those two things. They have the hope of heaven and they have the love of Christ. See, Christians know that Jesus, the Son of God, has shown us the greatest love of all. He died on the cross for our sins and rose again. See, what happened on the cross, God the Father put all of the sins that you and I have ever committed and all the sins we'll ever commit. And he, he put them on his own son. And then Jesus is punished in our place. He dies the death that we deserve. So on the cross... Jesus is cut off so we can be brought in. Jesus is actually condemned. Why? So you and I could be acquitted. Jesus actually is forsaken. Why? So we could be forgiven. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, really giving us and proving to us that everything that he said and did was true. Now, this gospel really is, gives us the assurance of our hope for heaven, but also 
releases the power for us to really love and love others in a sacrificial way. So I want to ask you, if you come to this place yourself, can you say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. So do you have the hope of heaven right now in your heart? Will reminded us on Wednesday night that Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew 10, he said, do not fear what the body what can destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. You know, Jesus asked a disturbing question in Mark chapter 8. He said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? One of the things that times like this call us back to is the brevity of life and really the fragility of life. It's so fragile. And also calls us back to that great question. Where do I stand with God? I mean, where do you stand with God right now, really? It really causes us also to do something else. It causes us, causes, really causes us to put others' needs before our own. Now, none of us really know what that might look like in the coming months, but I'm sure it doesn't look like hoarding toilet paper and hiding in the basement. It looks like Christ on a cross. It looks like running towards something, not running away from something. It looks like sharing our resources with those in need, even possibly to our own hurt. It looks like the type of life that only makes sense if heaven is real, if Christ is alive, and if his love is a driving force of our lives. You know, the power and possibility to not be anxious and to seek first the kingdom is very much available today for you and me. See, when Christ, before he ascended, he said, my peace I give you and my spirit I give you. And the fruit of his spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and all these qualities that really should be shaping the foreground of our lives. In this fragile and fallen world, as people who call themselves Christians, we are called to bear witness to the kingdom of Christ. So in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be really seeking the Lord on all kinds of creative ways and out-of-the-box ways for us to really minister the kingdom of Christ in these days in which we're living. I'm going to close by telling you a story. And the story is of Tom Chisholm, actually Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. He was born in the mid-1800s. At a very early age, he struggled with a debilitating health issue that really caused him to have great trouble with so many things that he wanted to do in life. He was impaired, and everything about he tried, just about everything he tried to do, he failed. Well, almost everything. You see, one day, in the midst of all of this, he began to be interested in writing poetry. And as he began to write a poem, he was inspired to write a poem about the faithfulness of God. In fact, this poem was later turned into a song, a hymn, one in which you know, one in which we sing often. It's entitled, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's a great hymn. 
I want you to remember, dear friends, eternity, really, it's long. Life is really short. And come what may, God is our Father, and great is His faithfulness. And may His faithful character and eternal kingdom be the background that transforms the way that we see everything right now and we see everything in the days to come. And so I think it's only appropriate that we close with that song, Great is His Faithfulness. So let's go ahead and focus our attention on our loving Heavenly Father as we sing this closing hymn.